So I'm now going to turn you over to Professor John Raw, who is Professor of European Prehistory in the Department of Archaeology here at Cambridge. Uh, he is also the principal, inve principal investigator of the After the Plague, Health and History of Medieval Cambridge Project. So, John, come on up and tell us about Bring Out Your Dead, Health and Destiny in the Middle Ages. John. Thank you all for coming. Um, I love giving public talks in Cambridge because generally you can talk as you would if you were teaching, but the people in the room know about everything. And so there's an expert in astronomy over there and a legal scholar over there, and they come up with the most interesting cross-purposes questions you ever heard. So you always come away thinking. Um, thank you for coming. Um, a couple of preliminaries. This is a new talk. I haven't given it before. This means that I have no idea how long it will actually take, and it's probably lumpy in places. So bear with me. Um, I was asking Lori how the Festival of Ideas was going so far, and she's been coordinating the archaeology events, and she said, so far it's great, nobody's died. Um, well, in fact, a lot of people did, and that's what I want to talk about tonight. Uh, this is actually slightly more comforting than it seems, because I find that I really enjoy working on this, this topic, partly because I live in Cambridge now. You'll notice from my accent I'm American, but I inhabit Cambridge, and I say inhabit because one of the things I really like is walking around the city and thinking, I know what happened over there. I know what happened over there. I go through the marketplace, and I can be walking through several historical moments at once. And it's a really interesting feeling. I've been making the most of it recently to take a little bit of vacation from the 21st century in the sense that one thing about working, about, working on a project about a historical period in which 40% of the population died in one year is that it puts things in perspective. Um, the US president may be going rogue. Whichever side you're on, current British politics is distressing and frustrating and upsetting, but we're not quite at that scale yet, and people will muddle through. So with that as a preamble, let's take a little bit of a vacation from the 21st century and go back to the 14th century. The other preliminary, as you'll see, I work with a large team, and many of them know clever things I don't, and I've shamelessly learned a lot from them and tried integrating it here. Um, we also owe a lot to Welcome, who funded us, and to St. John's College as well. So I guess the, the sort of biggest context is a question of what role health plays in your life. Um, in the last five years, journalists have started saying something other happened and a person had life-changing conditions. And I actually think this is a very useful phrase. We forget how life-changing health can be. And in part, I think that's because we're so good at dealing with it now that it's only when something really traumatic happens that it changes it. And I put up a little bit of a plug here for the NHS because if you grow up in Britain, you may take it for granted and complaining about the NHS as a national sport. But if you grew up in a country where you go to the hospital and they ask to see your insurance forms before they treat you, the NHS is how things should be in a civilized country. So in that sense, um, it helps focus us on what health does when we don't have a service that makes us better when we need it. Another way of looking at it is to look at our life expectancy curve there. Um, we assume a world in which you live for quite a long time before you die. We have a very old dominated mortality curve. We live in a world in which the assumption is generally people are in good health. And I want to take you on a little trip to a different world. What do we know about medieval health? Well, there's the horrible history's view. Um, it may be a period-based assumption and probably wrong, but I will assume everyone in here has probably seen Monty Python and the Holy Grail at some point. Um, bring out your dead. I'm not dead yet, etc. Um, and this, I think, reinforces the general idea of the horrible history's point of view, which is that in the Middle Ages, the plague killed everyone quicker than you could say Jack Robinson. Um, it's the big mortality. In that sense, if I were to ask you if you could cure one disease in the Middle Ages that would make some kind of a historical difference, where would you put your money? What would it be? And the answer is probably obvious. If something is going to kill 40% of the population of England in one or two years, then that would seem like a bit of a major threat. What I'm interested in today is how did health affect the world? And I want to think about it in two ways. One is how health affects the world in a larger sense, a big scale. How does the landscape reflect health in society? But I'm also asking how health affects your world. In that sense, there's a human world also, a kind of experiential world. And so what I'm going to do in this talk is to talk you through 
health affecting individuals and how it changed their lives, and then step back and talk about the bigger historical effects of it. That's the game plan. Let's start with a little bit of medieval Cambridge. Um, I'm talking about the later Middle Ages, 1200 to 1500. Cambridge was quite a small town then, although it was in the top 20 for British towns. That meant you had a few thousand people because Britain was primarily rural then. Um, it had three or 4,000 townsfolk. These are mostly poor people, and they're mostly historically invisible. That is, we have no historical mention at all of the vast majority of people who lived in medieval Cambridge. Floating on top of that, or next to it, there was the university. And the university was fairly small early in this period, and it grew. It had between about 500 and 800 clerics and scholars. Um, they were all male. They were all religious figures. That was part of the admission to study. Um, and one of the main effects they had on the town primarily was to, to create a lot of consumers with a fair bit of money. So in that sense, Cambridge had more food purveyors and clothing purveyors and landlords than you would expect in a town of its size, like Huntingdon or Wisbeach or somewhere. Um, but I'm going to be telling the story primarily from the point of view of townspeople here. Now, medieval health is quite a hard thing to study. We know a lot about some aspects, and we don't know a lot about others. So there's quite a lot of medieval theory about health. Um, you can read books about the history of medicine, and they talk about physicians who diagnose you by casting your horoscope and figuring out the imbalance of the humors in your body and how this aligns with the macrocosm because your body is the microcosm. Um, what we have here is a picture, for example, of a teacher of physicians showing flasks of urine, which was a prime diagnostic tool in the days before blood tests, to several pupils, um, uroscopy. It's important to realize that was the high-end theory there are probably only a handful of physicians living and working in medieval Cambridge, um, maybe a few people teaching it at the university, and that was it. Physicians commanded fees. Most people couldn't afford them, and it's not entirely clear how well their remedies worked. They didn't necessarily, they weren't for the bread and butter ailments. So in that sense, if your tooth hurt, you probably went to a local healer who would tell you the right blend of herbs to take, probably things like juice of poppies, um, and folk knowledge remedies. The other point about it, uh, one of the members of our team is a doctor, and he has a fit whenever I say I'm studying health. So I should say it in a very low voice here. Um, and the reason why is because to him, health is a holistic thing and it involves people's attitudes and understandings. So in that sense, um, it's not simply your physical condition. And in this case, we probably need to acknowledge that a very important aspect of medieval health was spiritual health. That is, you might die in pain with some sort of disease, but one of the important things was that you would get the last rites and be bound for the right place, a short term in purgatory followed by salvation. So in that sense, um, it was health as part of a balanced portfolio of priorities. And you can see this in some of the imagery. This is one I love. This is from a church in Salisbury that shows the resurrection and people getting up and climbing out of the graves. They're all naked except for the signs of office. And then the sinners, of course, go down to the jaws of hell, which are often conceived of iconographically as a big reptilian beast that consumes you. Now, if I'm going to talk about medieval health, I should say a few words about how we actually study it. The answer is there aren't any really good ways. We have three or four sources. They're all proxies that tell us different things. So for example, as I mentioned, you can look up medieval books about health, manuals for doctors, things like that. They're mostly about medicine, not about health. They tell you how to treat ailment X as people recognized it. They don't tell you how many people really had ailment X and what it really did to them. Um, there are textual sources. I've given you an example of a later textual source here just to show you some of the problems. I don't know if you can read it. This is a so-called bill of mortality from 18th century London. People are starting to do statistics to write down who died in a given period of time and what they died of. So you can see that in London, um, how many people died of each recognized cause. Some of these are pretty straightforward, so when we see 4,000-something people died of consumption, we know consumption was more or less what we think of as tuberculosis. That was a kind of Victorian way of doing it. Apoplexy might include things like strokes primarily. So sometimes the translation is straightforward. Um, there's one here called fever, malignant fever, scarlet fever, and the purples, um, which probably confutes a whole bunch of infectious diseases. 
Some of these are really mysterious. The first time I read this, I saw that several thousand people died of teeth here. And at first I was thinking maybe what happened, this is before antibiotics, and if you get an infected tooth, it can turn into septicemia and kill you. And that certainly can happen. But in fact, what that is, is that's shorthand for babies who died before they were getting their teeth or when they're getting their teeth in. So historical sources are a bit ambiguous. There's a lot of things, when someone died of the flux or the ague, we spend a lot of time worrying about exactly what disease that meant. There are skeletons. I won't say much about them because you'll see a fair bit later, but just to give you one example, that's the middle vertebra from a 13th century person from Cambridge, um, from the middle of their back, and you can see a depression that indicates that they had a herniated disc, and you can see a very fine fracture line that healed up, so we know they had a back fracture that healed up, and they also had long-term spinal damage. So sometimes the bumps on skeletons tell us stuff. There's one other source that's really important that's just coming to the floor, which is very simple. Infectious disease leaves, much of it doesn't leave much trace in the skeleton, but if, you, if your body is filled with a pathogen infecting it and you die, your body may contain the DNA of the pathogen. So when we take a bone extract and examine it for ancient DNA, very often we actually come out with the DNA of pathogens as well. And you'll see how important this can be. It's basically rewriting the whole history of infectious disease. So those are some of the sources I'll be talking about. Life-changing health. What do we know about how health changed lives in medieval times? Well, this is rarely recorded except in high-profile cases. So, for example, um, the heir to the throne after Edward III, the Black Prince, died in 1376 of dysentery at age 46. Um, Henry V died of dysentery at age 36. Both of these would be preventable diseases probably now. And if you really want to, you can wonder would this actually have presented the war, prevented the Wars of the Roses had at least a recognized forthright heir to the throne been there? I'm not sure. It's worth arguing. Counterfactuals are always fun. Um, another example, Geoffrey Chaucer, um, the writer for 14th century Britain, died at my age, which is a bit humbling, um, 57, with the Canterbury Tales unfinished. What would they have been if he had another 10 years? We don't know. These are famous people. What about all the 99% that we have no evidence they existed except for their skeleton? Now, I'm going to show you some serious research in a minute about this, but I thought I'd show you a little bit of an experiment we're doing at the moment. Um, it's a work in progress. We've got, we decided we would try gamifying it and make up a game where you play the life of a medieval person and things happen to you, and you also get health, health ailments, and at the end it reckons up how much life you've lost as a result. Um, the hard part with this is making it be a fun game, <laughs> rather than you were born, you got sick, you died. Um, it's in a testing phase, so it's not ready for release, but I can show you some prototypes. So here's our person, his age 22, being a journeyman. He's married, he has one child, his health is good, he's on his way up. Your back is hurting from your heavy workload. He's made it on another um, 11 years. Now he's actually doing very well for this game. He's an alderman. He's quite rich. Um, he's married with three kids. Um, his piety index is going down, so he's, he's sinning a bit. Um, but he seems to be enjoying life. There may be some relation here. Dental disease. Your teeth are beginning to ache. One or two fall out, et cetera, et cetera. And every time this happens, it subtracts a little bit from your ability to work, and so that influences your earnings as well. Because, of course, we're dealing with a world without disability benefit or social security, so effectively your ability to survive is based on two things. One is your own ability to work, and the other is your family network. And in the test game that I was preparing this with, he actually got struck down by the plague, um, not the Black Death, but a later epidemic, and that's the end of him. Um, in his final stats, you can see that he lost a fair bit of money to ill health if you count the lost earnings reckoned up. He lost 14 years if you think about a normative life expectancy and how far short of that he came. And it gives you a little tabulation of the diseases that he actually got. Um, and 
the historical recognition. So this fellow did very well, and he probably would turn up in some historical document. Most of the people who play the game don't. And finally, what kind of things might turn up in his bones? Um, in this case, um, he, had, he would see spinal damage and arthritis in his joints, and probably a few teeth fallen out. So that's a little bit of an attempt we're trying to do to get a kind of experiential idea of health in the Middle Ages. But now on to more serious research. Um, one thing we're trying to do at our project is to write osteobiographies. This is exactly what it sounds like. Um, imagine that someone is writing your biography and they assemble all of the historical documents on who you were, your letters, tax records, whatever it is people write biographies from, and they come up with a picture of your life and they connect all these facts to make a story about it. Now, imagine you have no written records for someone and effectively a lot of medieval Cambridge people are basically, they're not prehistoric, but they're ahistoric. Um, but the skeleton is a document that records a lot of events in your life. So I thought I would just talk you through a few osteobiographies we've reconstructed, a few life stories based on the skeleton to give you a sense of the texture of people's lives. It's a biased one, of course, because it tells a lot about health. It doesn't tell about things like whether you were happy when you went to work, necessarily. Um, but it does get to tell you something. I should say, parenthetically, that we had a lot of debate in our project as to whether to name our skeletons or just give them numbers. The issue was finally forced on us when a couple of years ago we had a reenactment event where we gave the biographies of some of these people to medieval reenactors who came in costume and played them and met the public and told them about their lives. And we were sort of hedging in a kind of academically, theoretically waffly way about whether we should name people and is it ethical to give someone a name retroactively, et cetera, et cetera. Um, the reenactors had no scruples. They just said, we can't reenact someone unless we have a name. So, um, so they christened a bunch of these folks. Um, I'm gonna start with a very common story and therefore I've given him the name John because that was the single commonest name, and one quarter of all males in medieval Cambridge were named John. And as that suggests, a lot of them had nicknames, so he's actually Jenkin, which was a common diminutive. Um, the reason this is a, a very common story is because we think demographically about half the people born in medieval England died before adulthood. And in this case, what happened, this is a boy who was born um, in the parish of All Saints, which is just the other side of the river, sort of up the hill a little from Mudlin College. He lived to be about three or four years old and he died. And um, <clears throat> this is a very common story. We find lots of kids' remains in burials. We don't know what caused his death. He had a little bit of new bone growth inside the back of his skull. You can see a microscope picture of it there. And a little bit of new bone growth on his palate. And this, these are signs that it was probably infectious disease and this is a bony reaction. It's also a sign that it was a long-term chronic one because Things that kill you fast typically don't leave marks on the bone unless they have a sharp edge. Um, that is, bone is a slow tissue to react. So we probably have a boy who spent a fair bit of his life being sick with some infectious disease and then finally succumbed. A very common story. This is the opposite end of the spectrum. Um, this fellow, I think, is an old survivor. Um, he lived to be sometime between 45 and 60 years old, which is a good time for a medieval period. Um, and when we look at his skeleton, what we can see is a lot of the diseases of age. We have our diseases of age. These are things like cancer and cardiovascular disease, for example, that affect mostly older people. Medieval people had their diseases of age. Their age was a little bit younger than our age for diseases of age. And typically what you have is a skeleton accumulating teeth falling out, arthritis at the joints, um, reactions to healed infections. So if you're a successful survivor in the middle, in the medieval period, your skeleton is actually quite busy or eventful because it's covered with things you survived. Um, in this case, this fellow had some healed infection, some active infections. He had spinal damage. We imagine him lifting and carrying quite a lot. He had various minor traumas, one on his skull and a broken rib. Um, so some kind of a, a physically stressful life. What I find when I try and write osteobiographies is that most of the information for most people is absolutely standard, but there's often one or two hooks that get you into some more complexity. And one of the interesting things with him is that he probably was some kind of a specialized craft person. And we know this from various details in his feet that suggest he spent a lot of time with them in a particular position. 
Um, he was probably working physically, which most people did. He probably wasn't a cleric. But his bone chemistry, his isotopic chemistry, suggests that he was actually very well nourished. He's pretty much at the top of the scale for a meat-enriched diet, which for the medieval period is usually a sign of economic well-being and status. So at that point, um, one question is what he's doing being buried in an institution for poor people, which is what the Hospital of St. John's was. And actually, I should remember to mention it. That is basically in the basement of this building. He was dug up exactly where we are, about 30 feet down, when they're renovating this about 10 years ago. So in that sense, he was probably a working man. He was probably in some kind of a job. Well, there's two, two theories about it. One is that he was in some kind of a job that gave him privileged access to food, some kind of a butcher or a merchant or something. Or the other is possibly that um, he had formerly been better off and had descended in the world somewhat. Um, and we may hypothesize perhaps he didn't have family support in his old age because if you were old and creaky in the medieval period, typically what you did was sit in the corner by the hearth while your family bustled around you. Here's another example, and I think this woman really did have some kind of life-changing episode. Um, she was christened Anne. She's an older woman, again, 45 to 60. We know from the genetics that she probably had blue eyes and light hair. Um, one of the interesting things about the genetics is that she had genetic potential to be average to tall, but she actually grew up being one of the smallest people in our collections. So one thing that may suggest is that she might have had a rocky childhood. She might have had a lot of infectious disease in her childhood or a lot of hunger or something like that. And there's, there are evidence in her teeth and her eyes of some kind of childhood growth interruptions. So she had a rocky childhood, probably. She then grew up. She was robust. She was a hard worker. You can look at the muscle attachments in her skeleton. Successful survival to old age. Her body is a palimpsest of things that she survived. But sometime or other, she had some kind of traumatic injury to her hip. And this created a very bad right hip. Um, she had arthritis all over her hip and her pelvis area. Um, she probably had a restricted or altered gait, and she had a shortened leg. So we pictured her here walking with a cane. Um, in that sense, it, she probably had some kind of a life-changing event that resulted in a restriction of mobility. And one of the interesting things about her is that she has asymmetrical legs. Her arms are actually very robust. And if, if we want, you can imagine her walking with some kind of a compensatory walking aid of some sort. But she made it to quite a respectable old age. Um, so in that sense, she's a winner. This is another example um, of a slightly different kind of illness. Um, and I should say that we asked our illustrator to draw a picture of this person in a active and vigorous pose doing some kind of productive work. And um, I think he's supposed to be hoeing a garden rather than kind of zombie apocalypse. Um, this is someone in the early Middle Ages. He's an average height man, but quite robust, and his body looks like he was quite active. He was a male who lived to middle age, to about 35 to 45 degrees. The interesting thing about him is that he's got leprosy. Now, you've probably... Medieval leprosy is another stereotype right up there with plague. Lepers um, hide away, out of sight, morally contaminating. But in fact, most lepers probably actually live in the community with other people. And in the time he lived, there actually weren't any leper hospitals in Cambridge. Several were founded later. But there were fashions for putting people in leper hospitals. And in some cases, it was probably a sign of status rather than a sign of, of restriction. Um, but he was a productive member of his community. It's care in the community, if you will. He had very visible facial changes. His hands and feet were OK. It may be that that was due to some kind of care he got with the hands and feet. I'll just um, talk you through a couple more of these that are interesting because, again, they illustrate particular things. Um, Maria, as she was christened, someone who, again, lived and died in the St. John's Hospital. The St. John's Hospital, which was right, its cemetery was right here and the hospital itself was right across the street, was a combination of home for the old, needy, indigent, and generally decrepit, and a place where people with chronic illness who had no other way of supporting them could go. So the two survivors I just showed you were the former category. They were old and decrepit. Um, 
this woman from the St. John's Hospital, Maria, was a young person with chronic illness. She lived in the late 1300s. She was a young woman. She was only between 18 and 25 when she died. Um, her isotopes say that she had a very poor diet in childhood. Her diet improved in the last couple of years before she died, and that was probably because when you were in the hospital, you got a regimented institutional diet that included meat and fish. So if you were in there because you're really poor, when you went in, the isotopes that monitor your meat and fish intake would get a bounce, and I think that's what you can see with her. Um, she had active tuberculosis in a very distinctive sign in her pelvis, her spinal columns, and her legs, and it's probably what killed her. And tuberculosis is a chronic disease, and it was killing people in Britain, well, basically up until the 1900s. So I think what we see there is a very common story. The other common story our young woman here illustrate is shown here by someone from Cherry Hinton from a cemetery we're looking at there, um, a woman that was called Matilda. Well, her folks didn't call her Matilda, the reenactors did. Um, and um, she lived to be slightly older than Maria. She lived to be about 25 to 35 years old. She lived in a rural village. She was an active person. Um, she had a bit of infectious disease in her body. There was a lot of new bone formation in her sinuses that suggested chronic sinus infection, um, and some in the meninges around her brain. The interesting thing about her was that when she was excavated, they found a full-term fetus in her abdomen, something I think it was between about 32 and 36 weeks, as far as you can estimate these things. Um, we do not know that she died in childbirth, but, and of course, there are lots of other things that can kill you coincidentally while you happen to be pregnant, but it's a distinct possibility that this is a death in childbirth. And if you think about it, that would have been a major killer in the medieval period if the average woman is reconstructed as having something like six births in her reproductive career. And if every time you had a birth, there was a small chance of death in childbirth due to obstetric complications, it does add up. And I think she's a very typical illustration of that story. I'll just finish by returning to the plague briefly. Um, we have two varieties of plague experience here. Um, one of them is from another person from All Saints, which is a parish hospital just up the hill. and. This is one that we've called Richard, or Dickon if you want the nickname, um, born around 1285 or 1300, probably died in the 1348 epidemic. Um, he lived to be between 45 and 60 years old. He lived to be a respectable age, a senior male as it were. He had pretty good health for his age. He was doing fine. Um, chronic low-grade age-related things like some osteoarthritis and some infections. When we took a bone sample and we did genetic analysis on it, what we found was the bacterial DNA for Yersinia pestis, which is the black death bubonic plague pathogen. And of course, this is a real problem for archeologists because we know black death killed a lot of people, but until recently, there's never been any way to find out that they actually were killed by black death because something that kills you in 24 to 48 hours doesn't have time to change your skeleton. But the DNA is rewriting that. And what we have here is someone who is typical of most people in medieval Britain that if the plague claimed them, they weren't buried in a plague pit. They were buried in their local parish cemetery. And we're fairly certain it was a 1348 epidemic, partly because the All Saints Cemetery was actually closed relatively shortly after that because the parish went out of business due to the depredations of the plague. The contrasting story is number 92 here, Walter or Watt. And he was probably born sometime in the 14th century, um, maybe around the, the early to middle. In that sense, he was probably a contemporary with Chaucer. Um, he lived to be about 60 years old. So if you do the maths, he died sometime between 1375 and 1420. And the odds are, he, well, he would have lived through at least the plague of 1366 and several later ones because there was a Black Death, and then after that, there was an epidemic every 10 to 20 years. And the odds are quite good that he actually lived through the Black Death epidemic of 1348 as a small child. So at the same time as Dickon, who was the grandfather's age, was being claimed by the plague, a young boy called Walter, well, 
I like to think he was called Walter, was running around watching this, going to funerals and surviving. And what got him in the end, as far as we can tell, is that he has an active bone cancer. And you can see an example there that that's a CT scan of his skull with a little bit of a lesion perforating it. He also had a number of other things going on. So in his vertebrae, in his backbone, and his forearm and his hands, he had a number of fractures which were all healing at the time he died. So they happened not too long before he died. And they may have happened because his bone was, he was old, he was osteoporotic, his bone was weakened, he fell down, he had multiple fractures, he had a cancer, it all came together. So it was not the plague that got him in the end. I think that gives you an idea of some of the individual lives. Um, some people lived for a long time with quite severe infections or disabilities, and they simply got on with their lives. Um, you also see a lot of common killers at work here, especially infectious disease, tuberculosis, and childbirth. If we think about the effects of it, there's obviously pain and suffering. Um, as Shakespeare said, you never meet a philosopher who can stand toothache. And I suspect that was true of people who are not philosophers too. Um, there are years of life lost in the sense of people dying at age of 40 when for a bit of antibiotics, they might've made it to 70 or 80. Limitation of activity, including the ability to work. And I think one quite important thing is health-related poverty. That is the health itself may not have been an under, unendurable problem, but if it prevented you from working and you didn't have family support networks, then effectively um, that would cause serious life difficulties. I think the way medieval people cognized a lot of this, I put a picture of the Wheel of Fortune in there, and there was a basic idea that in human life on the worldly plane, stuff happened. There are vicissitudes of life. Kings were cast down on the Wheel of Fortune and became peasants. Peasants were raised up and became kings. Not very often, but um, conceptually it could happen. Um, and the point about it is that the world is full of vicissitudes if you want to stay on a on a controllable, safe course, turn to spiritual life. Parenthetically, one of the interesting things um, we found is that actually inside the town there were health differences as well. Um, so imagine you're walking around medieval Cambridge. Um, you're mixing with people who are someday going to be buried in a parish cemetery, which is the ordinary church. Others of them are going to be buried in the hospital, which is an institution for poor people or needy people. And others of them are going to be buried in other sites. So for example, the Augustinian Friary, which is just on the south side of the marketplace near Barclays Bank or the new museum site. Um, friars were, were buried there, but also if you were a high status townsperson, you could be buried there. You could pay money to be buried inside a high status place. And in general, the friars came from a higher social class than the townspeople. And in general, they had they were a wealthy friary and they had a rich diet. And what we see, therefore, is that by and large, the Augustinian friar population is, they have a lot of the same diseases that people had because being rich didn't keep you from getting infectious disease in the Middle Ages, but they tended to be taller and have better diets. So there is a bit of a differential healthscape as well in Cambridge as there is nowadays. Okay, um, let me turn to the second topic I want to talk about briefly, which is what does all this have to do with history on a bigger scale? And here I want to talk a little bit about the plague. Um, it's been called the biggest single catastrophe of the Middle Ages, and you can certainly imagine that. Um, it came to Britain in 1348. The whole plague began spreading through Europe in 1347 from Central Asia. It was caused by the spread of Yersinia pestis. It's a bacterium which has a very complicated life cycle which involves getting into the human bloodstream via fleas, and the fleas are probably carried also by rodents. It's thought to be rats in Europe. It was probably marmots in Central Asia where it started. Um, Yersinia breaks out periodically. So the 14th century one is called the second pandemic. There was a plague that was called the first pandemic in the sixth century, which is also called the plague of Justinian. And then there was the third pandemic, which happened in India and China in the early 20th century. When the Black Death got to England, it killed about 40% of the population. And it's quite chilling because we have documents from the time, you can read letters and things, and people would say, we're in London, we've heard about this thing that's down on the south coast, it's coming towards us, what can we do? And the answer was not much. 
And then when it got to London, they would, people in East Anglia would start wondering when it was going to get here. And a couple months later, it would get here. So it sounded like, um, as I mentioned, it puts anything we're experiencing nowadays in the shade for general cultural trauma. In Cambridge, we know a lot of people died, but we have never had direct proof of it. We don't really have plague pits in the Smithfield London style with hundreds of bodies laid out. Um, we found quite a lot of it, though, through our ancient DNA work. So, for example, we found the first genetic evidence of the so-called Plague of Justinian, the Anglo-Saxon period one at, down in Barrington. And of the medieval, medieval plagues, the Augustinian friary has several individuals who died in different plagues. Um, there's a couple at All Saints, and actually one of the most interesting ones is when you walk past down Bennett Street, there's a little alley behind Corpus Christi College. When they were repaving that and putting down some pipes, of course, they got the Cambridge Archaeological Unit out to dig it. They found four skulls there. It was part of a sort of group burial inside a pit. And when we tested it, what we got was Black Death. So we have our own very little plague pit down that alley. Unfortunately, what was excavated was a strip about four feet wide because that was what the pipe needed. And most recently, there are a couple of bodies in the museum from Coldham Common that allegedly came from a pit dating to the mid-17th century. And these are thought to be a plague pit. And lo and behold, they also have a bacterium. So they probably are from some kind of a plague pit out on Coldham Common, nicely out of town. But that's, that's from the later one. Now, people at the time had ideas about the plague. There were two main theories. One was the medical one that it was caused by a miasma or bad air. And if you fled away from the bad air, you might survive. Not a bad idea. Um, the other was spiritual one, that it was punishment by God for human sin. And commentators at the time thought of it in terms of the world turning upside down, the social order reversing the triumph of death. And especially they were worried about the social order reversing, at least the people who could write were. That is, workers were coming to their masters and demanding wages twice as high as before because there was a scarcity of workers, and this offended the social order. Now, these kind of theories are mirrored in historical debates, what historians write about it. And again, I can contrast two general ways of looking at it. Um, one is the act of God model, where why did the plague happen? It happened because it happened. Stuff just happens. And when it happened, it changed everything. The other model is what you might call the perfect storm model, proposed by a historian called Bruce Campbell. And what Campbell argues is that the reason the Black Death was so catastrophic was because of lots of other things going on. So, for example, the 14th century was generally a miserable century. There were repeated major famines. There was climate change going on with the climate getting a little bit worse. And Europe was full. It had about as many people as could live on medieval agriculture. So at that point, you had a lot of people who were hungry and had compromised immune systems and so on. You get the idea. And in this argument, by the time you get to the middle of the 14th century, a lot of the changes that the plague are is supposed to have caused were happening anyway. And some of these changes include things like killing lots, like the population descending. Um, others include things like famous deserted medieval villages, that is villages that went out of business in the period after the plague because of a decline in population. Now, at this point, let's think for a second about catastrophes. Um, if you killed 40% of the people in Europe, what might you expect to happen? Well, this is really, really hard for us to think. Um, world War II, as far as we can tell, killed about three to 4% of the world's population. It had transformative social effects in many ways. The Holocaust killed six million people. Again, cultural trauma, multi-generational political effects, the birth of a new nation. 9-11 um, killed about 3,000 people but you could argue it's affecting the whole politics of a generation. Um, there's a lot of different responses to major catastrophes, ranging from psychological trauma to cultural trauma to structured memory and people talking about life before the war, um, religious change, new religions, regime change, loss of culture, loss of traditions, international political restructuring, political realignment, all sorts of things could happen. In that sense, you can imagine it would only take something that would kill a few percentage of the population nowadays to cause any of these. What we know happened with the Black Death was a more limited range of things. 
in the short term, there was psychological trauma, clearly. Um, it also had a lot of silver linings, if you want to put it that way. If you have an overpopulated country in which people are tied to land and land is in short supply, getting rid of 40% of the population rearranges the balance of people and land. Landowners generally became poorer. Working people generally became better off. There was increased mobility. People were less tied to land. And land shifted from farming to pastoral use because if it's expensive to hire people to plow, it's less expensive to hire people to herd. And you use your space in a way that can be fed into the cash economy. It creates animal protein. People may be better fed. So there's a whole set of knock-on effects. But one major effect was that Britain took a long time to recover. So if you look at the demographic curve, there's a peak of population, probably around 5 million people in England. It falls to about half that, and it takes two or three centuries before it gets back to pre-plague levels. What is equally striking is what didn't change. Um, and I've learned from bitter experience what happens if you stand up in a room full of historians and say the plague didn't have such major effects. You have to be ready to duck. Um, but in that sense, I'm not saying the plague didn't have major effects, and especially for the people involved. But it's interesting that there was no major regime change. There was no major political shift. There was no major upheaval of the social order, of the basic structure of medieval society. Historians of religion, art, and literature seem to have trouble actually putting their finger on something they can call a plague literature or a plague religion and so on. So you can look at things like the triumph of death, but there are indications that may have been starting before then. There's surprisingly few things which can be defined as pre-plague and post-plague. Um, so and one example is that if you think about Chaucer, as I mentioned, Chaucer is the 14th century writer. He lived through the Black Death as a small child, a bit of a near miss for English literature there. Um, he lost relatives in it. One of his uncles died. Um, he has lots of topical references to things going on in society in his writing, but he doesn't mention the plague. He's far more concerned, for example, with the peasants' revolt, which may be a sort of generation later knock-on effect of the plague, but he's not, he's not particularly out of, bent out of shape about the plague. OK, so at this point, I began to think, and I'll, I'll just talk about this one more topic, and then we can call it a day. Um, I was thinking about a little bit of a thought experiment. How do you actually figure out what the economic cost of a disease is, or the political cost? OK, well, the World Health Organization has a method. It's the kind of thing they do when they talk on the radio about how the real cost of back pain is 7,500 billion pounds a year, or whatever it is. How do they come and arrive at that number? Um, they figure out an estimate for the purposes of social planning. It's never been applied to historical problems, and there may be good reasons for this, as you'll see. Um, but effectively, what they do is they calculate something they call the burden of disease. This is actually very simple. Um, imagine a disease in the population you're living. You may live to age 60, but a disease kills you at age 30. That's 30 years of life lost, lost to disease. So if their unit of analysis is how many years of life you've lost to disease, that's 30 years lost there. Now imagine that a disease reduces your ability to live a full life by 50% and you have that disease for 30 years, according to their logic, you've lost 15 years of life because living for at half capacity for, for 30 years is equal to being alive for only 15 years. Um, you'll see right away, there's a lot of made up mathematics in it. How do you know how much years of life being blind or ability to live and experience a life being blind or having a bad back takes? Um, there's made up parameters. It's a notional measure but it's good for rough comparison. So I thought, OK, at this point, it would be interesting to figure out what the World Health Organization would say about the Black Death. Now, one parameter you'll see, obviously, is life expectancy here. Because if you use this kind of years of life lost model, if you kill someone at age five, you've lost the whole rest of their life. And how long that is depends on how long you expect people to live in that society. If you kill someone at age 75, then you can be deeply sad for them, but they're probably not going to jack up your years of life lost figures. So what I'm assuming here is your standard pre-modern demographic model, which is high infant and child mortality and a low life expectancy. 
I won't go through this in detail. This is simply to say you have to make up lots of parameters about how you think diseases affect the population. So for example, I've modeled here that tuberculosis will affect 10% of the population. It will affect people of all ages, and it will give you a 40% incapacity for as long as you live. Um, I've modeled plague is affecting 25% of the population because the big black death plague killed about 40%, but it was followed by epidemics that killed 10 or 20% every 10 years or so, and so on. A couple of things I threw in for fun here, fun. Um, one is war, which I didn't calculate the knock-on effects of war. I simply calculated the effects on the direct participants. Um, and here, the benefit, of course, is that in England, most of the war was overseas in France or north in Scotland. Um, social inequality, I've calculated as affecting 25% of the population, and it adds to your probability of malnutrition, accident, or infectious disease. So here's a little bit of results. Um, if you figure, if you take these diseases and you impose them on a pre-modern population, this is the kind of thing you get. You can see that diseases of infancy and childhood, all of those things that killed little kids below five years old, they're really the big killers because they're the ones that are wiping out the human potential in the population. Um, they're probably mostly infectious diseases, simply things like diarrhea, scarlet fever, measles, all sorts of things we routinely treat nowadays, but children are very vulnerable to them. Tuberculosis is, an, is a very big killer. Um, death in childbirth. Malaria was probably important here in Cambridge because we were on the edge of the fens, which was a kind of swampy area, and we know malaria was historic, historically existed here. Um, social inequality was a big one. Whereas you can see some of that paleopathologists, that skeletal people are very fond of, like gout, because you can see it, is actually not that much of a problem. Um, cancers are a big one for us because we live a long time until cancer might get us, but they're not such a big problem for medieval people. When you throw in the Yersinia pestis, you can see what happens. Yersinia pestis is sort of in the second league, as it were, the Black Death. Um, it's, it kills a lot of people when it happens. It's catastrophic, it's devastating, but it only happens one year in 10 to 20 years, and the rest of the time it's absent. So in that sense, if you average the mortality over the entire medieval period, it's much less than it appears. So in that sense, um, the big killers here probably are social inequality, death in childbirth, tuberculosis, and especially diseases of infancy and childhood. So get a clean water source, among other things, and take care of your kids. Now, of course, we need to think, put this in perspective a little bit, and when you think about the experience of disease, it goes a little bit beyond the highest body count, as it were. That is, we're not playing sort of disease conquerors to see who kills the most. And one way of thinking about it a little is that tuberculosis or something like that is like climate change. It's a gradual condition, it's chronic, it's always there, it's hard to see perceptibly until someone dies of consumption or you have a flash flood but it's a gradual chronic thing that may have a high human cost and higher historical effects, but it's less perceptible. Plague is much more like wildfire. I've walked through forests that have been burnt, and what you get is a scene of total devastation. It's sudden, it's traumatic, it's devastating, it's highly visible, it's an event everyone remembers, but the recovery under the right circumstances could be quite quick. Demographically, the problem with the Middle Ages was it wasn't the right circumstances, that many people were living a marginal enough life that the demographic rebound wasn't there, but that was probably due to things like inequality and the economic system much more than plague inherently. Just a couple more final thoughts, and um, then I'd love to hear any questions anyone has. Is there anything we can learn about this, about resilience? Um, in that sense, the Black Death killed a lot of people, but it had a much less lasting effect than a much smaller catastrophe would have for us now. And the question is why this would be. There's a number of reasons that are possible. One is that it killed rich people and poor people alike, and as a result, it didn't necessarily give you a fuel for overturning the social order. That is, everyone was a victim. Likewise, it killed people in all countries across Europe. If you killed half the people of England and France was intact, you'd probably have an invasion and vice versa. 
if you kill everyone everywhere, then they're all too busy dealing with that. Um, it didn't wipe out institutions for conserving knowledge. So even when people died, the institutions that knowledge was kept and transmitted by um, kept on. I think one thing that's quite important is that religious narratives channeled the psychological responses into stability, as it were. So if you're seeking comfort about the plague and you turn to religion, the basic narrative was one that was about keeping things going and stable, except for a few places in Europe where Jews were blamed and massacred. This didn't happen in England, partly because all the Jews had already been expelled, which doesn't say much for our tolerance, but that's a separate story. Um, but the point about it is that the, the psychological response to it was one that led back to a stable social order. And I think possibly the most important point was that medieval society had a very cellular structure. Towns were economically self-supporting by and large. Manors were economically self-supporting by and large. So if you killed a lot of people, each group could rebuild. Whereas I imagine if you were to remove a few percentage of our population, we would have things like the supply chain for food freeze up because we have such a complicated articulated system that even removing small bits of it will cause the whole thing to break down. So in that sense, if we want to be resilient, possibly we should be much more cellular. Take home message. Back to the World Health Organization, health and human lives. If you're a god and you're trying to help medieval people, what would you cure? Plague is the poster child for health disasters. In fact, we even talk about a plague as just meaning anything that really ruins something categorically. But if you really wanted to improve human life for medieval people and change the course of history, there might be other things you could try. Um, childhood infectious diseases, tuberculosis, death and childbirth, social inequality, and a number of others. And um, chances are, if you took care of these, plague itself might not be such a big problem. Okay, um, I'll stop there, but I would welcome any questions. Thank you very much. This perfect storm uh, thing that you mentioned, I know it's someone else's work mm. referenced, but um, problems with food production, population, and climate change, mm. meaning a particular type of vulnerability. Mm -hmm. So what was the climate change? What was the, what, what did you find there that was the most salient? Um, what was the perfect storm model? What was the most cutting edge bit of it? I think the answer tends to be the interaction of factors in the sense that if you have a well-nourished population, they can fight off infection better. Um, I think probably there, when you get into around the turn between the 1200s and the 1300s, the climate begins to get a little bit cooler and less productive, if that makes sense. And if you have a population that's economically prosperous, that doesn't make a difference. But if you have a lot of people living close to the margins. So for example, it's estimated that about 10% of England's population died between 1315 and 1320 because there was a series of years where you had years in a row where there was mass famine, where crops failed and people just starved to death. So in that sense, there was historical vulnerability, as it were. The system was already starting to break. Um, do we know anything about whether medieval people had a different attitude to pain? And what kind of pain relief would they have had available to them? Um, that's a really good question. What did they do when they hurt? Um, I think it's very hard to figure out if they had a different pain tolerance. It's even quite hard nowadays for finding out if different living individuals have different pain tolerance, if that makes sense. So um, I think you could argue that they're probably habituated to it as it were, and that there were a lot of folk remedies. So for example, um, quite a lot of the medicines we use nowadays are descended in some way or other from herbs, or were until about 50 years ago when pharmaceutical companies started doing really serious research into it. And in that sense, a lot of our basic palliatives were discovered in some form or other a long time ago. And things like, the, for example, the opium poppy is the prime example but there are a number of others as well. So there were herbs. You could go to a surgeon. If your tooth was hurting, you could go to some kind of a barber, a surgeon, or a dentist to get it taken out. Um, I suspect also they probably had psychological ways of dealing with it, which we might consider somewhat a, akin to meditation, um, things like prayer, 
or focusing your attention. But that's not really well studied. That's simply my guess. As far as whether they hurt as much as we would if we were them, the answer is I don't know. I suspect they were stronger and tougher than us in a lot of ways. Why was there so much osteoporosis? Did they not drink a lot of milk or get, get sunshine if they were outside a lot? Hmm. That's one of those <laughs> questions where the great thing about being part of a big team is that I don't know the answer to that, but I know the person who would know it and who's unfortunately doing something else tonight. Um, I suspect it probably didn't have to do necessarily with um, milk or exposure to sunlight. We found a few cases of rickets in our medieval people, but not very many. I think it may, probably had to do with things like metabolic hormonal changes. Um, but in general, I think they may actually have had less than us as, as a result of having quite a physical lifestyle. Because one of the things about bone is that it's a dynamic tissue. And if you put a lot of stress on bones, they tend to get thicker and more resistant. So in that sense, if you're basically doing physical work of some kind, and I think everyone in these societies was doing it. So for example, women's work was actually quite tough physically as well. Um, then probably you build up tougher bones than we would have as a result. Is there an explanation why the plague was there for two, three years and it died out? Mm. You know, I've only been in the plague business for a few years. Um, this is why I'm a professor of European prehistory um, and doing medieval stuff and got into it by the back door. And when I started doing it, I came up with a number of questions and I found out that you could really embarrass a plague specialist by asking them. And the two of them are why it comes in epidemics and as opposed to something like most infectious disease, which is here all the time. And the other one that no one really understands is why it stopped that makes sense. Um, because the last plague in England is 1665. It's the one that's, that's documented by Samuel Pepys in his diary. And after that, that's it for bubonic plague in England. There's a few later plagues in the continent. I think the best bets, no one really knows. I can say that outright. But the best bets are that the plague has quite a complicated reproductive cycle. And if you interrupt it, so if you do something that disturbs the ecology of rats, for instance, um, then that may actually interrupt the cycle. There's a little bit of a, a possible theory that there's some kind of a resistance that develops in survivors as well, which would mean that it's spaced out every so often. So you, you live through a plague, and then there are fewer, fewer fertile people for the next one to attack. But it's an open question. Speaking about resistance to plague being kind of passed on, is there any data about resistance to the different types of plague? Because I know you mentioned bubonic, but there's obviously septicemia from pneumonic. Do we have information about that? Is there recordings about the different types of plague that was happening in different pockets of the country at the time? Oh, um, that's a really good question. That's really interesting. The, um, the answer is no. Typically what happens when you have a major epidemic is it's all the same kind of plague. And the when you say is it different plague, what you, you need to be careful about whether you're talking about the genetics of the organism itself or how it's transmitted. So for example, um, plague that's passed through your bloodstream like septicemic plague and plague that you get through the lungs like pulmonary plague and bubonic plague, all of these are the same organism. It's just a different mode of transmission. And typically when you get an outbreak, it's the same organism over the whole country. So. Um, but the interesting stuff here is that the geneticists who study this, and there's a whole province of people who make a living out of studying ancient organisms, it's a relatively new field. They've only been doing it for about 10 years. And the main goal, the holy grail they're trying to get at, so to speak, is co-evolution between humans and pathogens. And in that sense, you have to think of it as an arms race where the strategies are changing. So if I can digress on that for one second, the um, we know about the historical plagues going back to the plague of Justinian. What we didn't know was that, in fact, there's a lot of plague in prehistoric Europe as well. So three or 4,000 BC, there was bubonic plague, but it's thought that it may have been transmitted differently and it may have been less virulent. So it may have had different population characteristics. And in that sense, the plague may be undergoing the kind of evolution that's very common with, um, with infectious diseases where it starts out as very virulent and then over the course of time, it becomes less so. 
influenza has done this in the 20th century. And of course, the reason why is because if you kill off too many of your host, then you're not in it for the evolutionary long run. So the answer is we'll know more about that in 10 or 20 years. I suspect that all of the plague in the Middle Ages was the same plague, and how it was transmitted may have been a matter of convenience as to whether, because these things jump around a lot from one host animal to another or one transmission route to another. Hi, um, so I think you mentioned um, isotope analysis of mm -hmm. um, bones. How do you manage to find out how diets changed over a lifetime? Because um, surely that what you would get from mm. the is, is sort of what it was at the time of death. Yeah. Yeah, that's a really good question. And the answer is a testimony to how cunning archaeological chemists are. Um, OK, I revealed the fact that I'm 57 years old. So in that sense, the bits of my body that formed this year date to 2019. So if you took a hair sample, it would show 2019. The bits of my body that date to when I was a little child date to the 1960s. So if you looked at my diet in my tooth enamel, which formed when I was a little kid, you'd get the 1960s. So in that sense, one thing that people commonly do is to take a bit of the first tissue formed in your life, which is your tooth enamel. Well, that's the first tooth, uh, tissue that we commonly recover. And a bit of the last tissue, like bits of bone that have a high turnover, like some of your ribs, and then compare them. So I'll, do, I'll just give you one really good example that's beautiful. Um, you often see people who have a greatly enriched diet when they enter a monastic lifestyle. So you get some boy who's living on a farm and eating whatever people on the farm eat. They go into something where there's a regimented thing that involves a lot of fish every week and their nitrogen value just shoot right up. And you can see that if you compare their, the tissues formed recently before they died with the ones formed in childhood. It's actually a lot of fun for us. You mentioned other childhood diseases. I was just wondering, I mean, you can see osteoporosis, and I'm guessing you can find the germs, but how do you see evidence of these other childhood diseases, and what would these diseases be? Um, the evidence is actually sort of easier but frustrating. So um, one of the most common ones is something called enamel hypoplasia. And what that is is if you think about your front teeth, they're forming as you're a child. And if you have any kind of growth interruption, it usually causes the enamel to stop forming for a little bit. And this doesn't usually have any major effects on you. And you can go through life with these things in your, in your teeth happily without knowing it. But what it does do is every time that the tooth stops growing for a long enough period, it leaves a little shallow furrow in your tooth enamel. And at a certain point, we can count these up and just see. The problem with that is that that's a non-specific indicator. So it doesn't tell us what caused the growth interruption. And it could be a bout of ill health. It could be a bout of poor nutrition. It could be even psychological trauma. So we know people had growth interruptions as children. What we don't always know is exactly what caused them. And I think that's where getting a wider range of DNA evidence on bacteria is going to help us. But again, that field is, is just growing explosively. It's going viral. Yeah. So there is the miasma idea, yep. the bad air, and then mm -hmm. the idea that it's just an act of God. Yeah. I'm wondering how these two conceptions of the plague interacted. And mm -hmm. so was it, because one seems quite scientific in a sense, and the other seems quite religious mm -hmm. throughout this distinction. So yeah, I'm wondering what you can say about that, whether they informed each other, interacted really. That's a really interesting question. That the, the very short answer is that medieval people had two or three very different ways of looking at the world. And the miasma theory was part of a whole scientific medical way of looking at the world. And the spiritual one was obviously part of institutionalized religion. And if you really wanted to, you could put them up as opposites and they could fight. But in practice, what people tended to do was either use them situationally so at some, in some situations, you'd resort to one theory, and in other situations, you'd resort to the other. Or make a kind of syncretism, which is the kind of thing people did in later periods, where you had the Newtonian idea that God set up a clockwork universe and then stepped back and let the Newtonian rules run it. So if you wanted to, you could 
come up with a doctrine where it was all happening as the will of God, but this happened filtered through the scientific system. And there, there's sort of almost every variation possible on these ways of combining it. And the map showing the spread of the 1348 epidemic uh, mm. seems to show a pocket in Poland, sort of like Eastern Europe, where it seems to be relatively unaffected. Is there a reason why, you think? Um, I think there, there are a few such places in Europe, and no one knows. It's not due to any genetic resistance. Um, in a few cases, it's simply historical luck. So, for example, it didn't, I think Iceland escaped the first plague and got devastated by plague um, half a century later. Um, so I, I think basically historical chance, but it may also have to do with how well integrated there were, they were in trade networks and things like that, because it's very clear that the plagues spread from group to group along well-traveled networks. So if you had a group that was living in the swamps of Poland and didn't have a lot of external contact, then this may have actually been their salvation. And in that sense, it's where these pockets turn up, it's almost always in the northern or eastern fringe of Europe. Okay, great. I think um, if anyone has any other questions, just come up and ask me. And otherwise, thank you very much and enjoy your evening. <laughs>